Welcome to Conversations with Cynthia. Cynthia Hyatt is a Christian psychotherapist specializing in trauma therapy, couples, relationships, and personal development. She is passionate about your life and is here to encourage, teach, and inspire you to be your own best version. Find her online at CynthiaHyatt.com. That's C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T.com. Now, with today's fresh insights, Cynthia Hyatt. Well, welcome to the show. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, and so glad you are ending your week with me, or maybe you're starting your week with me. Either way, I'm glad that you tuned in and that you're joining us in this community of people that are really wanting to be the best version that God had originally designed us to be and to be the best version of who that is. So I'm glad that you're here today. We are talking about fear. And is fear bad? Because I know that there are some, sometimes we get this feeling that if we have fear, we don't have faith. And if we have fear, then we're not honoring God. And that somehow fear can be a sin. And so what I posited yesterday was this idea of if we don't do what God says, are we sinning? So if we're afraid and God tells us not to do it, is this an issue of humanity or is this an issue actually of morality? And then I gave you this great question. You know, is it a sin to be human? Because humans fear. Humans fear. And this is a part of the brain structure. So this is different than greed. This is different than lying. This is different than these types of things. This is an emotional state that comes with the package. And so we can sin in our fear, right? We can do sinful things because of fear. But simply being afraid is not something we necessarily have a choice about. Our brains do it for us automatically. It overrides our choices many times. If, you know, truly, if we could choose to not be afraid, wouldn't we do that most of the time? If I could choose my feelings, I'd be happy all the time. But I can't choose all of my feelings. They naturally occur. Some of them are automatic responses. Some of them are my brain trying to help me the same way that your computer tries to help you. And if you have an Apple computer or you use a browser, you know how much it tries to help you. You put in one sentence and you get about 20 options. And you decide which options you take. You don't believe everything the computer is presenting to you as to being positive or something that you're going to trust. So we want to recognize that, that fear in some ways can be a choice, but it's not initially a choice. So I can choose to remain fearful after I've checked everything out and found out as to whether or not this is really truly something to be afraid of. Okay, I'm going to take a little um, bit of a break here. I need to tell my producer that the window washers are madly washing the windows uh, behind me. So if you hear any of that, that's what you're hearing. And I think they're going to be done in a couple minutes. So hang in there with me. So we left off on this idea of being fearful. And I can choose to live in a state of fear. And that has a lot to do with what I tell myself and what I'm willing to ruminate on and how much I believe my own thoughts And, you know, many times I I remind clients and I remind myself, I say, you know, do you believe everything you think? And you may want to challenge that thought. 
You may want to challenge that feeling. Do you believe every feeling you have? So that's part of checking things out. Now, I want to make a little disclaimer here because there are some people that because of the way their brain is hardwired or because of lots and lots of trauma, they wouldn't be able to turn that alarm system off all by themselves just by the way they think or by doing any types of meditation or exercise or changing diet. All of that can help, but there, there may be a need for some professional uh, intervention and some psychopharmacological intervention. So I just want to put that out there to really encourage you all to, to understand that if you've done everything you feel like you can do, then it really is the time to seek out a professional and get some help. Certainly, it doesn't, lots of times it can be three months, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's two years. There are a certain percentage of people that may for the rest of their life need that kind of support. But many people just need that alarm system, that, that learned response in their brain. It just kind of needs to be pulled down. And so they need some outside help that really calms the brain down. So let's go back to this whole idea of being, this idea that being fearful is part of being human. And fear in and of itself is most likely not a morality issue. It is merely a feeling. And if it were merely an issue of morality, like I said yesterday, it would be in the Ten Commandments. God would have made it number 11, do not be afraid. But whenever we see, do not be afraid in the Bible, it's said with comfort. It's the same way that you might say to a child, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Or, you, or to your friend, or to your spouse, or loved ones, or pe- your aging parents, or the, what, whoever. You might, want to just, you might be saying to them, hey, listen, I have your back. I'm going to help you. Don't be afraid. And that's what God says. So when we look at the definition of, of fear, what we get is understanding this anxiety caused by a real or possible situation, thought, or fact, that it's real or it's possible. And that's how anxiety is caused by a real or possible thing. So it might be really happening or it might be possible. And sometimes if it's really happening, then we automatically think that it's possible to go on forever. So it's also an awe or reverence for something. And we talked about that. It can also be apprehension or concern. So it can be that, that underlying anxiety that is apprehension about an upcoming event or a decision that you have made or a decision someone else has made. It can be concern for someone. It can be concern for an organization. It could be concern for your country concern for the world, concern for someone that you love that found out they had a very bad medical diagnosis. And so you're having some some underlying fear or anxiety about what the outcome may be. So what you have to understand is fear is not an issue of faith initially, and nor is it an issue of morality. Paradoxically, our weaknesses are not always sinful. Now, Understand, as humans, we can sin in all kinds of ways. So I can do things that are immoral to try to medicate my anxiety. So God may need to address with me the fact that, hey, you're abusing um, some anti-anxiety medications. 
instead of really working on the anxiety and using the medication to help with the process, you're not wanting to do the work you need to do. You just want the anti-anxiety medications to fix it. Or maybe you're drinking. Maybe you are avoiding, procrastinating at things. Maybe you're staying in the house and you don't want to go outside and even try. Maybe you're not making the necessary phone calls. So there can be some behaviors that may seem irresponsible, that may even be immoral. Okay, so if I'm doing things in a hedonistic manner to assuage the anxiety and fear I have, well, then God may have to talk to me about the way that I'm managing my fear and anxiety. But it doesn't mean that fear and anxiety is necessarily a sin in and of itself. So what you want to think is that truly faith is an issue of relationship, and that is not morality either. So those of us that are weak in faith, right, when the Bible talks about that, we pray for them. Some have, have that gift of faith, and they are much stronger in their faith. And some places I have lots of faith, and some areas I don't have as much faith. So faith is more an issue of me and God. It's me working on my relationship with God. The same way you have faith in the people that you are in relationship with. The better you know them, the more faith you have. The more often they do what they say, the more, more often they say what they mean, the more faith you have in them. So many times we have more faith in humans than we do in God, which is kind of silly, but it is part of the human condition. It's harder to have faith in an entity you can't see, touch, taste, hear, or smell, other than in a spiritual manner or through other people. So faith is based on trust, and trust strengthens relationships. So the more I'm able to trust God, the more I believe, and with more faith, the more I hope. So this is where hope comes from. It's trust, belief, faith. So what you want to think about is, if you're having a hard time trusting God, you might want to say to yourself, well, what do I believe about God? Can I list areas or things that he has done in my life that I know that God intervened, that I know that it was God that did that? And that helps my belief. And so this is where we then increase our faith. And the more we increase our faith, through trust and belief, the more hope we have for God to help us with whatever the issue is that we're, that's causing us anxiety. So Hebrews 11, verse 1, says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So faith is being sure. It's confident. There's no anxiety. There's no fear in what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. See, our faith leads to hope, but our faith has to be grounded in trust and belief. So when we, we have the story in the, the New Testament of the father with the son that the, the boy was uh, tormented by spirits and kept throwing himself into the fire, that Jesus said to him, well, do you believe? And the man said, yes, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. So he believed esoterically in who Jesus was. But he's saying, but in this moment, with this situation, can you help me with my unbelief? 
And so I love this idea. When we look at this with fear, and God says, do not fear. He's speaking as a parent to a child. It's relational. So he's saying, do not have the feeling, but rather do not act in fear. He's not telling us to not feel this. He's saying, I understand you feel this way, but don't act out in your fear. You need to depend and rest in your faith. So if you have a ton of anxiety, if you have fear of something, you want to say to God, before I act in my own behalf, I need to ask you what I should do. How might I use my belief and my faith to help me trust you so that I have hope? And so understanding that emotions are part of being made in God's image. So when we have feelings, when we have fears, then we want to understand it's not that moral issue. It's being human. And so there's a distinction between healthy fear and unhealthy or toxic fear. So healthy fear goes back to those shows we did about about having the fear that is healthy and that is not something that is causing us to be crippled and doubt or trust our own um, resources and the God that we serve. So healthy fear says I have a healthy respect for something. I have a healthy respect. Afraid of dri driving. Well, I don't generally drive at 80, but, you know, in times when we had going through the interst on interstates in, in Wyoming, right? But if I'm driving at a high speed, I want to recognize that I can trust my car. If I can't trust my car, then we have problems. And so it's the trust issue that helps us do, that really helps us take advantage of our faith in who we know God is and who he's going to be for us. So unhealthy or toxic fear is that tendency to continue to ruminate on the fears, catastrophizing, thinking of all the worst things that could possibly happen and looking to see if they are happening and using all of my resources to anticipate a fear and look for that fear to occur. This is a toxic fear. A toxic fear is something that overtakes me, causes me to doubt God, causes me to doubt myself, my own capacity, causes me to doubt the world around me. Instead of having a healthy respect for the fact that, yes, people do bad things, and I can't always trust humans. But for the majority of the time, I can trust humans. So toxic fear causes me to lose faith, lose trust, lose hope. And that's what the enemy of our soul wants. So we look at this when we think about, is this fear true versus just real? And, you know, we've talked about this, that, that fear, is, that, that something real is palpable. I can feel it. But is it actually true? And I give you the example of when we work with people that have eating disorders. They feel so fat that they're going to starve themselves to death. The feeling of being fat is so real that it causes them to continue to do really, really negative, unhealthy behaviors. And so this is where we get this acronym of F-E-A-R, fear, which is false evidence appearing real. So we have false evidence, right? A, a, an emotion that's telling me the world is an unsafe place. 
detects false evidence and it appears real. And one of the reasons that that false evidence begins to appear real is because I start looking for all the ways to validate the fact that this feeling is true versus just simply being real. I hope that makes sense because this is an important thing for you to recognize. Is this false evidence appearing real? I need to really look at it. Am I looking for all the ways to substantiate my fear versus looking for ways to really undo that fear? And this goes, always goes back to a trust issue. So unhealthy or toxic fear can lead us to immorality, to sin. Whereas healthy fear leads us into holiness and wisdom. That's what healthy fear does. So again, think about toxic fear or unhealthy fear. This is what causes us to try to self-medicate, take matters into our own hands, use ways, use ways or systems that are maybe not above board, that are not necessarily healthy, as a way to tolerate a fear. Versus having healthy fear that says, I can trust the one who died for me. I have all kinds of scripture references telling me about who God is and that he has, he has me in the palm of his hand. He is going to help me. He is not going to leave me. He's not going to abandon me. He's not going to forsake me. He put that in writing and signed it with his blood. I mean, that's amazing. It's scary to put things in writing. If you've ever read something that you've written, you get a different experience of it. So imagine the fact that God put into writing repeatedly, 70 times in the Bible, do not be afraid. Do not fear. And he tells us why. And he continues to prove his character to us. Because he wants that fear that we all are going to have to lead to, to more dependence on him, more trust in him, so that we have more hope in him, so he's able to do bigger things in our lives to prove who he is to us, so that we become people that are stronger, that do healthy risk-taking, that take on the world and change the world. And that takes someone of courage. So remember, yesterday we talked about this idea of discouraged versus being encouraged. And so we want to take the dis out of courage. See, discouraged means without courage. So I want to add my trust, my faith, my hope in God to add that to my courage, whatever little grain of sand I have that is courageous, so that it is infused with my hope in who God is and what he has in store for me and that I trust him. So why did God give us emotions anyways? I mean, what are they for? I mean, seriously, right? Feelings, you know, so many times I go, man, I wish I could just be a robot and not feel anything. But you know what? God gave us emotions. And one of the main reasons he gave us emotions are to experience him. He is an emotional being. He's an emotional being. And so he wants us to experience him. He wants us to experience each other. He wants us to experience life. See, one of the beautiful things about mammals 
is that ability to connect with each other. And so the feelings is what gives us that experience of that particular event or that person. So feelings are also intended to make sure that we, we create bonding and attachment. So when we feel deep feelings with people and about people, we have more attachment and more bonding. And they've done lots of studies about crying and laughter. And when people cry together, even if they don't know each other, they all of a sudden bond. They have a bonding experience. They have an attachment. So even when they see that person the next time, so think about the Boston, the marathon bombing. Those people cried together. So even though they don't interact, if they were to see each other, there is a bond. They cried together. When you cry at a funeral, you have a different bond, a different attachment with those people when you cry, when you share grief. And it doesn't necessarily always mean the crying of grief. It can be happy tears. It can be tears because something's so poignant, so moving. So they help with attachment and bonding. The same thing that happens with the emotion of laughter. When you laugh with someone, you automatically bond and attach with them. And it's even a greater bonding in many ways than grief. Because if you've ever experienced something really fun with somebody, or even a joke or a funny experience, and you laughed, a belly laugh with that person, and you don't see them for a couple months, and then you see them, as soon as you see them, you smile. And you start laughing because you're like, yeah, you remember that? That's what happened. Because emotions bond us together. So God also gives us emotions because they indicate something and inform us of things. So we have to be using the intellectual, spiritual part of us as well, our conscience as well, to make sure that what it's indicating is actually true and what I think it's informing is true. So I might use those emotions to say to somebody, you know, I just got this feeling, but I don't know if it's true. But it kind of gave me this, I don't know, this awareness, and I think I'm picking it up right, but I'm not sure. So I want to run it by you. So feelings are also intended to energize us and motivate us. So they give us energy to do something. If you don't use them to do something, you're going to be in trouble. And so I want you to think of this analogy while we come to a close today. Is fear a pet? Think of fear as a pet. Or is it a working animal? See, if fear is a pet, then I can, I, it's, it's a companion. I indulge it. It's like a friend. I might even ignore it. And I might use it for a false sense of intimacy. I might embrace it. It might be my object of affection. That means I work my fear. I work my fear. And I intensify it. Or is fear a working animal, which is what it's supposed to be? And that means that it's doing something for me. It's giving me extra energy to go forward or to resist or to go back or to endure. That's what we want fear to be. So I hope this has been helpful for you, but I want to remind you always, you can trust the one who died for you. That's Ephesians 3, verse 20, and John three sixteen. God bless you as you really learn to manage fear and have fear work for you and not against you. Have a wonderful weekend. Make sure you check out the website. Send the show to your friends. 
And I appreciate you so much. God bless you. And thank you, Jeremy, so much for all your help and support. Have a great weekend. To hear today's program again or to share it with someone else, please go online, CynthiaHyatt.com. That's C-I-N-T-H-I-A-H-I-E-T-T dot com. Conversations with Cynthia is heard daily at 3 p.m. and 12 noon every Sunday on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. Follow Cynthia on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Cynthia Hyatt. Until next time, remember, be your own best version. Yeah.